Last couple of weeks we have been looking at 1 Kings chapter 8 where the temple is dedicated. And then tonight we will be looking at 1 Kings 9 where we have the God's appearance to Solomon for the second time and his work and agreement with Hiram is discussed as well as other endeavors. And uh, we've only got a couple more weeks left, so I want to get you prepared for your test that's upcoming here in two weeks. <clears throat> Why are you laughing? I was trying to be serious about that. Now, these three things I want to stress to you, these will be on your test. <clears throat> But these three things, as you go away from this class, if I could think of any three things perhaps that I want you to take with you as we leave this study, these are some of those things that we've talked about. First, the tabernacle, the temple, the church, and heaven, we should tie those all together. Perhaps you remember a couple of weeks ago we looked at this diagram here as in Genesis 3 we're separated from the tree of life. And until we get to heaven in the presence of God, we have all of these pictures that God gives us through His Word. Moses' tabernacle. We have the picture of Solomon's temple and then Ezekiel's temple as well in the book of Ezekiel, the latter part of that book. That is actually the church. And all of these are pictures of getting back into the presence of God. And I'll borrow the, uh, the idea we had from Hebrews chapter 8, that these things that we're seeing are copies and shadows of heavenly things. You recall that in Hebrews 8 verse 5? So we go back to number 1, the temple, the tabernacle, temple, church, and heaven. Whatever you see those in Scripture, tie them together and understand how they relate to one another and how they are uh, discussed in, in the Scripture. And also understand and, and see and notice how many times these are referenced numerous times in the Scripture, in all Scripture, especially uh, the, the New Testament but also the Old. Number two, there's two things that loom very large in the Old Testament. As you're a student of the New Testament and you look back in the Old, I want you to understand and see that there's two things that loom very large in the Old Testament. That is the, the temple and the glory of the temple and the deliverance from Egypt. Those two things are discussed over and over and over again in Scripture. And so therefore I think it, it's important that we understand them better <clears throat> and understand why they're being brought up so many times for us to see. For instance, the, the prophets talk a lot about the bondage and deliverance from Egypt. Well, why is that? Well, hopefully one of those things we see is how important they are and how they loom very large as we look back at the Old Testament. Number three, as we've looked at the glory and the splendor of Solomon and how great it was, it still paled in comparison to that glory that Christ has. Nowhere near. Also the glory and the splendor of the temple itself. As great as it was, as costly as it was, and how much effort and work, if you've been with us all this time, we've focused on how much work and materials and value of all that, but yet that pales in comparison to the church. And But those three things will be on your test, so uh, <clears throat> be ready, two weeks. All right, 1 Kings 9, 
Well, let me do this before we go on further. I can't forget about this. Where are these words found? But you are fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God. Let me say this before I read this too. Those three things that we just read try to emphasize how important these things are, especially as we go into the New Testament. This is one of those examples. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom each several building fitly framed together groweth into a temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. Where are those words found? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 19 and, and following. All right, so we, we read a passage like this, and we're, it references the, the foundation and the cornerstone and the building that fitly is framed together into a holy temple of the Lord. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we've been studying? And those physical pictures we're seeing in the first Kings, we take those with us as we go into the New Testament. And when we see passages like this, it perhaps you might say it goes from black and white to full and living color. Some of you can remember the days when TV was black and white. And when it went to full and living color, that was just, wow, that was astounding, wasn't it? Well, this brings all of those things in the New Testament into full and living color. A couple of leftovers from last week. Second Chronicles chapter 7, <clears throat> verse 1. Uh, as Solomon had finished praying at the dedication of the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. And this is not the first time this had happened. This is... Uh, it happened before in Leviticus chapter 9 as Moses is preparing the people there to, to perform the sacrifices in a certain way. Leviticus 9, I think it's verse 24, it happened there as well. The burnt offering was consumed by fire from God. It, so it happens again here. And also it's interesting to me as you go on down to 2 Chronicles 7 verse uh, Five, how many oxen and how many sheep were there that day? 120,000 sheep, and as I look back, it looks like 22,000 oxen. Can you imagine being in the midst of all these animals? Have you ever seen 120,000 sheep in one place at one time? Can you imagine what that would look like? 120,000 sheep. 22,000 oxen shows you what a glorious day this was that the temple is being dedicated in this day with this huge amount of sacrifice that has been brought here for the purpose of worshiping God. I can't imagine the numbers, an unbelievable amount. And also, some people uh, say, well, how could they do that all in one day? You remember the altar of sacrifice was 30 feet by 30 feet. 
It was so many that Solomon had to dedicate, if you remember from your reading, had to dedicate the middle of the court to offer sacrifices there as well. So apparently there wasn't big enough, so they used the middle of the court uh, to offer sacrifices as well to help them out. Also this fire that God brought down in, in chapter 7 verse 1 here is... We're reminded not only was it done in Leviticus, but God said in Leviticus 6 verse 13 that the fire should be a continual fire. It would be to be burnt always and never to be put out. Go on down to verse 12 of this chapter. You recall last couple of weeks Solomon has been praying, praying for the people largely, interceding on their behalf, 2 Chronicles 7 verse 12 the Lord is appearing to Solomon. He says, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. Isn't that wonderful after the prayer to hear God's confirming that he's heard it, he's accepted it. And going down to verse 14, he says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will what? I will hear isn't that what God, uh, Solomon had prayed for? He said, God, hear their prayer. When they sin, you saw last week the cycle of sin and then repentance and hearing. God said, or Solomon requested that God would hear and basically means to forgive. What does he say here in verse 14? I will hear from heaven and I will do what? I will forgive their sins. What a wonderful Assurance that must have given Solomon to hear. He prayed to God on behalf of the people to hear that God said, Yes, I will hear and I will forgive if they repent. And that's certainly the idea. All right, let's get into 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9, which is our text for. This evening it came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all Solomon's desire, which he was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. You recall in chapter 3, verse 5, he initially appeared to him the first time, and he, he said, Solomon, what would you have? What can I give you? Solomon replied, Wisdom. That's the first time. This is the second time. In chapter 6, you may recall as well, a few weeks ago, God appeared to Solomon to urge him to remember to walk in my ways, but that was actually done through what appears to be an angel or a prophet in chapter 6. So God appears to him again the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said in verse 3, I have heard thy prayer, thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually, continually. As for thee, uh, verse 4, if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee, wilt keep my statutes and mine ordinances, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom over Israel forever. According as I have promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. 
Now, notice that in verse 4 and verse 5, the obedience is not only or strictly done by keeping the commandments, but in addition to that, what is required? The heart, isn't it? We don't just merely keep the commandments and think we can do it just outwardly, but God says it's the heart that has to go, has to be combined with this to keep the commandments properly. Verse 6, if you shall turn away from following me, you or your children, and not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but shall go and serve other gods and worship them. Notice that verse 6 is presenting a condition upon the, the fulfillment of the promises. This is conditional. And also, uh, as before we get into verse 7, let's recall in 2 Samuel 7 the promise to David as well. Do you remember that promise to David? God promised to David, let's go back and look there just briefly. <clears throat> the, uh, he's promising David, verse, 2 Samuel 7 verse 13, He will build a house for my name, talking about Solomon. I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Forever he will be, I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, notice this, verse 14. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the children of men. Now keep that thought in mind as we go back to our text. Go back to our text here, 1 Kings. <clears throat> if they uh, do these statutes and... But shall go, if they go and serve rather other gods and serve them, verse 7, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them and this house. Notice in verse 7, I will cut them out of the land, remove them from the land and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And to hear that on the heels of this great ceremony, dedication, worship service that has dedicated the temple, all the work that's been put into that. And God appears to Solomon and says, this great house that you've built, all this time and effort and money and what you put into it, what's going to happen to this house if you don't obey? Be destroyed. Verse 7, let me highlight a couple of things here that I think we see in verse 7. Catching up on our outline, God appears to Solomon the second time, verse 1 through 9. He says, if you walk in my ways, and we see the promises there. Opposite of that, he says, if you do not, there will be punishment. He highlights two things. The land, will, people will be carried away, and the temple, the house, he says, will be affected. It, it will become a reproach. It's such a glorious occasion that they recently had in their memory, and now God says, this house, if you don't obey, will become a reproach and a byword to all peoples that know and see and come by and pass by this house. Now let me pause there for just a minute and ask you this. What about the throne of David? We see here that the land is they're removed from their land, which is very significant for an Israelite to be removed from his land. It's much 
more than you and I would be if we're removed from where we live. It's nothing like removing an Israelite from his land. They would be removed from their land, carried away captive, and also the house would become a reproach. But what about the throne of David? What would happen to that? It will be established forever. Remember we read 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 a moment ago? What did it say? Did he say he would remove and cut off the kingdom, the throne of David? He didn't say that, did he? He said, if you commit iniquity, what was it he said? If you commit iniquity, you will suffer at the, by the rod of men. You will suffer and certainly they would be removed and brought into captivity. But the throne of David would continue on until Christ would come to the earth. Verse 8, though this house is so high, verse 8, yet shall everyone that passes by it be astonished and shall hiss. And they shall say, why hath the Lord done this unto this land and to this house? It had become such a reproach. And of course he's prophesying that this is what would happen. And about 370 years, roughly, that would actually happen. 586 B.C., it's going to be, they're going to be carried away into captivity. The house is going to be destroyed and burnt. And that's exactly what God is telling Solomon here. 370 years before it would actually happen. And everybody, this house, he says, this house is so high, it's so glorious, so full of splendor now. But let me tell you what will happen if sin enters and idolatry and corruption and disobedience. This house may be glorious, but if that happens, it will not stand. This is nothing new. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 24, God, even that far back, foretold of a time such as that. Deuteronomy 29, 24. He foretold of a time like that when his people would become a reproach. Why has God done such to his people? Verse 9, they shall answer because they forsake their God. So here's the question in verse 8. Why has all this happened? It was such a glorious place. God had blessed his people so much. Now he's, we're looking into the future. Why did God do that? Why did he carry them into captivity? And the answer is verse 9. They shall answer because they forsook the Lord their God who brought them forth, brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worship them and serve them. Therefore hath the Lord brought all this evil upon them. See, they traded their gods. They traded God for other gods, idolatry, those that could not help them at all. Isn't it interesting, once again, that God is appearing to Solomon here, as, as perhaps he might have been full of confidence and reassurance that what he has done here in building this temple has been so good, 
And God comes to him again. And he says, remember what I told you? Why do you think God's appearing to Solomon once again? He's already appeared to him once. And then chapter 6, by an angel or prophet. And here once again, why did he do that? He stresses authority. Mm-hmm. Do we ever get to a point where we don't need reminders? Do we ever get to a point that we are above that, above reminding us of authority and the consequences of sin? Yes. I think this, this day that we're reading about the consecration and dedication of the temple, there are three takeaways there for me. Number one is in this, in all those thousands of sheep and thousands of animals, we see the goodness and blessing of God, which they should have seen. Look what we have when we follow God. The second thing is the temple, which was built according to God's specifications, not man. And it was a glorious temple. It was wept. Uh, its destruction was wept about by people for ages. And the third thing is here uh, God demonstrates his power bringing fire down from heaven and consuming that. What idol had ever done that? I mean this was a day of dedication not only of the temple but hopefully a dedication of the people to see what happens when you follow God. Here are all these thousands of animals they had been blessed with, they had available, regardless of the other things they had, which uh, if we consider this to be a tenth of what they had or mm -hmm. uh, some arbitrary figure, they were very, very blessed. Mm -hmm. They were blessed with peace to be able to do this. They were blessed by God to see who he was, and what he could do. And there's this admonition, I think, uh, that is very important uh, to take a look around you. Your the idols can't do that. Mm -hmm. Only I can do that. And if you choose uh, to worship idols, you'll lose all of it, mm -hmm. which is what, what they did. Very good. Yes. Yeah, maybe to, to add to it a little bit, I think you're asking why now. Um, like to me, this is like one of the climaxes in their history. They're peaking. They've got a great king. He's really smart. A lot of people know about him. They're a wealthy nation. They've got a lot of land. Like you can get very comfortable in a situation like this. Like, man, we made it. And when you think you've made it, whether it be in you know, how smart you are or how wealthy you are or how successful your business is, like that's, that's when you're vulnerable. You need to maintain a sense of vulnerability. Like in this case, they could look back and say, wow, look at how great Solomon is. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you do that, that's it. He lost what Bruce was talking about, what the glory of the Lord representing amongst your people. You could instead say, man, look at what Solomon has done for us. And as soon as you do that, mm -hmm. It's over. Mm -hmm. Very good. The, uh, yeah, it's, it's, 
so fitting, and, and I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but perhaps it is that God had already seen some things in Solomon, as we'll see tonight as we go a little bit further. Some things that probably, maybe problem areas already beginning to show up, and uh, he needs reminders, as we all do. No one gets too big to not need a reminder about God and his ways, yes. A lot of time has passed since the original thought of the temple where David says, I'll paraphrase, why is my house so nice? And the ark is over in this tent, this tent that God designed, by the way. And I I think with good intentions, but possibly with some earthly wisdom saying Mm -hmm. we should do something better for God. And God's initial reaction is very flat. He said, who told you I needed a house? What, what, What makes you think I want this? And yet he he consents and and he's on board with it and then even gives the plans. He he consecrates it in this way. And yet then we see this conversation really underscoring that God's saying, I have not changed. I'm still not impressed by this to the point that you can can do whatever you'd like, that you can break the covenant with me. This house is going to glorify me. It will do that by you worshiping me correctly or by me proving how holy I am when I knock it completely over because you're not choosing to be my people. Mm-hmm. So God is very much showing his unchanging nature here in that, yes, I, I want you to use this. I want this to be a symbol of your devotion to me. But as the people will start to use it more like a talisman that they don't have to obey because they have this and what mm-hmm. can God do? We, we've got his temple. Mm-hmm. He, he's very constant in that. I'm not impressed by all this wealth if you turn your hearts away from me. And if that happens, then then this will go away too. They had begun to worship the temple uh, as years went by. You recall, I think it was brought up earlier uh, some week that Jeremiah 7 that talks about the the people that think in their mind, the temple, the temple, the temple. They they worship the temple. And that's how bad they had, had gotten. And God is, again, as you said, reminding them of what the temple is all about. Verse 8, again, as we go from this paragraph, God is saying, though this house is so high and great and, and glorious, remember me. Yes. One last thing in 7, uh, and just to go along with what's already been said, it always confused me why God allowed uh, other countries to take things from the temple and destroy it. Mm-hmm. That That never really... I never really understood it, except for verse 7 where it says, um, and this house which I have consecrated for my name. So uh, it, it goes back to what First uh, Samuel 15 says, uh, verse 22, um, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And to hearken to the fat of rams. Very good. All right, verse... Uh, well, right before we go into the next paragraph, I want to remind us too of as we bring this idea forward into the New Testament. Remember the words that were said of Jesus in John 12, verse 47 and 48. John 12, 47 and 48 says, If you heed my words and obey me, then of course you'll be rewarded. But verse 48 goes on to say, what about if you do not 
heed my words. If you do not, you have one that judges you. The same shall judge you in the last day. That's the admonition to you and I. Is that any different than what Solomon is being told here? At, at all. Not at all, is it? It's essentially the same exact thing. Verse 10. It came to pass at the end of 20 years wherein Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. Now Solomon, the king of Tyre, had furnished Solomon with cedar trees, fir trees, with gold, according to all his desire. That then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. It didn't appear, didn't appear that he was too happy with this. He called them in verse 13, these cities are Kabul, which I have a reference that that means worthless. In the Phoenician tongue, that means worthless. But it goes on to say in verse 14 that Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold. And I don't know that we should look at that and go, well, <clears throat> is Hiram unhappy? And he still paid him, but uh, there's an ongoing relationship here between Hiram and, and Solomon. Hiram is furnishing a lot of materials, and, and Solomon, uh, Hiram is being paid in various ways. It could also be said, I, th I think it's noteworthy to consider Leviticus 25, which talks about the redemption, the year of sabbatical, where the, year, the, the land is to be brought back and it's not to be sold and not to be, I would say perhaps this is a case where Solomon is giving away the land to a foreigner. I'm not sure that that was allowed by God. But Second uh, Chronicles 8 verse 2, we have Hiram giving Solomon cities. So I don't know if it's these same cities that he's giving back to to Solomon, or what to make of all that, but I will say that from these verses that we don't necessarily try to understand every part of this, but to understand there's an ongoing relationship with Hiram and Solomon, and we'll see that later on in the chapter as well, that, that that's brought out. Uh, maybe Hiram wasn't happy, but uh, apparently that was made... Uh, corrected by Solomon in some way, in some form. Verse 15, as we go on through the rest of the chapter, <clears throat> from verse 15 through the rest of the chapter, we have various things that are given to us. Uh, we'll catch up here on my outline just a moment as well. Verse 10 through 14, Hiram is displeased uh, of the 20 cities. And then to verse 15 through 28, more endeavors of Solomon. We'll see the temple and the palace, various cities that are mentioned, uh, the forced laborers. So let's continue with our reading here, verse 15. This is the levy which Solomon had raised. Remember, he had raised a levy to build the temple initially, raised a levy of uh, forced labor initially. <coughs> it appears here from verse 15 that this labor this type of labor is not only used for the building of the temple and his palace, but also these fortified cities and these storage cities that Solomon is going to build. As he continues in verse 15, his, uh, the place of Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, 
Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Megiddo, you might recall from, there's several battles in the valley of Megiddo. And it is uh, along the a very main course from the south to the north. And there's a flat area there where a lot of battles would be fought in Megiddo. And perhaps Solomon feels a need to make a fortress there in Megiddo so the people, the enemy forces cannot come and have an easy route into Jerusalem. This is part of what you're probably seeing here. Uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up in verse 16, taken Gezer and burned it with fire, slain the Canaanites, and gave this to his daughter uh, Solomon's wife. Solomon built Gezer and Beth Hor in the nether, Baalath and Tamar the wilderness, in the wilderness in the land, and all the store cities that Solomon had, and all the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and that which Solomon desired to build for his pleasure in Jerusalem. And in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. You see, the temple, all the effort and the years we've spent building the temple, all the effort and years we've spent building Solomon's house, and he's still not through. He's building and building and building more and more and more as time goes on. Verse 20, uh, again, a reference to the forced laborers that are brought from the Amorites, the, the descendants, that is, from the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, all these people that had been displaced, and uh, their descendants were made uh, forced labor to help in this building effort. Their children, verse 21, that were left of them after them in the land whom the children of Israel were not able utterly to destroy, of them did Solomon raise a levy, a bondservant unto this day, but of the children of Israel did Solomon make no bondservants. You recall in Leviticus 25, they were not allowed to make bondservants of their own people, of the Israelites. God disallowed that. Leviticus 25, about verse 39 or so. But of the children of Israel did Solomon make no bondservants. They were the men of war, his servants and his princes and his captains and rulers of the chari chariots and of his horsemen. So we have uh, building efforts going on here that are above and beyond what we've looked at in the temple and the Solomon's palace and all that. We see uh, perhaps primarily storage cities to store armament, to store chariots, to store various things of that nature. We have fortresses being built to protect the land, protect the people from their enemies, and these are put in strategic places. And also, in, a, in addition to that, it indicates that above and beyond this, that Solomon built anything else that his heart desired. And we'll see some of that as we go to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're not going to go there this week, but we'll try to go there next week. You recall all the, the things that Solomon built, all the things that he endeavored to do is listed there for us to read and to understand in the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, let's go on, uh, continue on here, verse 23. 
These were the chief officers that were over Solomon's work, 550, who bear rule over the people that wrought in the work. But Pharaoh's daughter came up out of the city of David under her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then did he build Milo. Pharaoh's daughter apparently in the city of David. The city of David would be in a lower section of what we would term the greater Mount, Mount Zion, the greater area there. So she would be in the lower section of that, brought up into uh, her house, her own house. And it seems as time goes on here that Pharaoh's daughter is preferred by Solomon. This is his wife, uh, perhaps even preferred over the other wives that he would eventually have. Verse 25, three times in a year did Solomon offer burnt offerings and peace offerings upon the altar which he built unto the Lord, burnt, burning incense therewith upon the altar that was before the Lord. So he finished the house. We should not really look at a verse like this and conclude that Solomon himself is offering these offerings. We, we saw in previous weeks, I think, and, and actually we would see in a uh, parallel passage even this week in Second Chronicles chapter 8, where he assigned that duty to the priest for, for them to offer these sacrifices. So... It's not as what it might appear, verse 25, that Solomon himself offered these offerings. These are offered by the priests. The three times in the year that are highlighted that Solomon did this are what three times of the year, three weeks we might call it. First is what? Feast of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks. Remember, all the males were to appear before God in his place, in his place of worship three times a year. During the Feast of uh, Weeks, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And that is what Solomon abided by, God's wishes and God's commandments to do so. Verse 26, King Solomon made a navy of ships in Ezion Geber, which is beside Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent in the navy his servants, shipmen that had knowledge of the sea with the servants of Solomon. And they came to Ophir and fetched from thence gold 420 talents and brought it to King Solomon. Now before we go too far, I would just want to highlight verse 28. This amount of, well, let, let's look at this map here first. Just get in your mind for just a moment. Easy on Geber. If you look up in the right-hand corner, maybe you can see Jerusalem up there in the top right-hand corner. You see that? Go directly south as you go to the Gulf, Gulf of Aquaba, and you see Ezion Geber there in the very north part. This would be where they built ports, and as we have described here, that Hiram helped him build a navy of ships in this place. Now, this place is quite a ways away from Jerusalem. Even outside the boundaries of his kingdom. But certainly Solomon has some sway here. And I would submit to you that Solomon is perhaps endeavoring a little too much 
But what we're going to see is the chapters go on in chapter 9, I mean chapter 10 and chapter 11. Solomon has already built the house of God. He's built his palace, built all these store cities. And now he's stretching way out, extending himself way out. And I would ask you the question, when is enough enough? When is enough enough? Perhaps we're seeing that point for Solomon. Deuteronomy chapter 17, which we alluded to many weeks ago, said not to multiply wives and horses and what else? Gold. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 and 17, I believe. God expressly forbade the multiplying by their kings to multiply wives and gold and horses. And I would say to you that perhaps that's what Solomon is doing. He's way down here. This is a, Easy on Geber is about, I think I looked it up, and if I remember correctly, it's about 200 miles from Jerusalem. And he didn't have an interstate to travel. He didn't have tractor-trailer rigs to help him facilitate all this. This is a large, extensive effort. Now, he made these uh, with the help of his buddy Hiram. And it seems that though Hiram may have been displeased at one point in time, Hiram's not so displeased now. Now, Hiram has it good. Hiram knows who butters his bread, doesn't he? He knows who helps him out. So he has to keep this relationship intact and that he does, and it certainly benefits him as well. Verse 28, the gold of Ophir is, is the most precious gold. This is not just your ordinary run-of-the-mill gold. This is the best of gold, and the prophets would talk about this as well as we go on. They would talk about the gold of Ophir and how valuable that is. It's the most valuable they could find. It's as if Solomon is saying, what else can we do? And we'll see this next week more as we go on. But it seems that he's multiplying and multiplying gold unto himself, extending himself so far as to build a navy of ships down here in a far off place to facilitate that goal. Are there any thoughts or comments Get one here. Yeah, I think kind of along the same lines, he's selectively following the law. And you said he's doing the right things about burnt offerings and peace offerings. But God had also commanded what to do with these Canaanites. He had told them, you need to purge them from the land. And Solomon decides to, to not do that and use them as cheap labor, and there's only one reason you can do that. It's because of what you're describing. Let's make this bigger and broader and better. That's the only reason you need forced labor like that. And so you're, you're selectively following the law, offerings, feasts, but at the same time, you're, you're ignoring the ones that situationally help you get what you want. I mean, it's, it's like you're saying, it's red flag, red flag. Yeah. 
I think these are several red flags. So let's take this, uh, some of these thoughts, carry these with us as we go into chapter 10. Next week we'll talk about the Queen of Sheba and her visit and uh, some of the things we learned from that. And I appreciate the class. Thank you for your attention.